and welcome to episode 30 of Cultural Capital. After our renegade midweek recording following the MIF program launch, we've returned to our usual Boudoir de Ross studios. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And in this episode, we'll be reviewing Sophia Coppola's The Beguiled. We'll be sharing the Cultural Capital film diary and our picks from movie. We'll also be hearing about Eloise's discoveries at Il Cinema Retrovato. Thank you. But first, roll down the windows, turn Smooth FM all the way up to 11 and buckle up for Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. So you're just starting your day or did you just get off? Oh, I don't know if I ever get off. They call, I go, you know. So what is it you do? I'm a driver. Oh, like a, like a chauffeur? You drive around important people? I guess I do. Anyone I'd know? I hope not. Well, aren't you mysterious? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe? <laughs> so when was the last time you hit the road just for fun? Yesterday. Oh, I'm jealous. Sometimes all I want to do is head west on 20 in a car I can't afford with a plan I don't have. Just me, my music, and the road. I'd like that. British director Edgar Wright returns for his first movie in four years with action extravaganza Baby Driver. Ansel Egort stars as the titular baby, a young man who drowns out his tinnitus by constantly listening to iPods. Finding himself in semi-servitude to a menacing gangster played by Kevin Spacey, Baby divides his time between listening to music while walking the streets of Atlanta, listening to music while flirting with a diner waitress, listening to music while doting on his foster father, and listening to music while being a getaway driver for various robberies. Joining him on these criminal escapades is a supporting cast of crims played by John Hamm, Aza Gonzalez and Jamie Foxx, amongst others. Lily James also features as a diner waitress and baby's love interest. Wright brings his trademark stylistic self-consciousness to bear on the material, which is told almost entirely from baby's point of view. The critical reaction has mostly been strong, although as Anthony Bourdain did tweet simply, fuck baby driver. So, Andy, are you on Team Bourdain? Uh, no, I'm not. I was completely won over by this film. I feel like it's a rare example of someone just making a film that's pure entertainment. It doesn't really seek to subvert or twist or bring a swaggering new young ego to Hollywood as a sort of a calling card. It's really obvious right from the word go. In fact, if you've been a fan of Edgar Wright, it's been obvious since about 1999, I think, when he made a music video that was pretty much exactly the storyline of Baby Driver. Mm that this is just a celebration and, and kind of like an updating of his love for films like The Blues Brothers or The Driver or um, French Connection, that sort of thing. So I feel like it is just so full of joy. I mean, it's just a completely sublime, wonderful experience I found. I mean, it's the colour, the music, the sheer attention to detail I think is phenomenal when it comes to piecing these scenes together. Um, the music is flawless, I feel. Like, it's just a wonderful mixtape that I'm really, really keen for that soundtrack to actually get released so I can listen to it. I think it has been released. Has it? Great. Yeah. Good news. Um, but also, I think the story of its creation is really interesting because he's had this idea ever since he first heard the song Bell Bottoms back in 1996, which I was completely obsessed with as well, and it is a really suggestive song, that he had this whole idea of a bank robbery being completely sy- synchronised with it. And so when he was let go from Ant-Man along with Joe Cornish, you know, as the writer and director much in the same way that Christopher Miller and Phil Lord have just been recently let go of the Star Wars Han Solo movie, it was a complete reinvigoration. So he didn't feel like Hollywood had turned their back on him. He just went back to his drawing board and decided to put this film together. 
there's a lot of things I have. I think it could have been better. I think some of the dialogue is pretty clunky in parts. I really wish Lily James would be given more to do. But overall, yeah. it's just so much fun. It's just like it had the same buzz from Pulp Fiction the first time I saw it. I'm not saying it's as good as Pulp Fiction, but the introduction scene of Pulp Fiction when they fly into Dick Dale's Missaloo just is bursting with energy and this beautiful marriage of visuals and music, which I thought was brilliant. Mm. I am. Um I am not a diehard Edgar Wright fan. I've only seen one of his movies and I didn't particularly enjoy it. Um, Hang on, you, sorry, you've seen one of his film, films? Yeah. Which one? Shaun of the Dead? Which one? The oh, World's did? End, that party uh, one. What? Really? Yeah, okay. That's yeah. okay, sorry. Um, I know, I didn't particularly enjoy it, so I wasn't mm. really, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of excitement going into this or energy for it. I don't know, and I do feel like Edgar Wright, a lot, a lot of people love him and, and maybe there was a part of me that was just like a, a little bit fatigued with the love for Edgar Wright. And I actually really love this film to begin with. I think that the energy that you're talking about, I really, really felt in the opening two scenes. Basically, I feel like uh, this is a movie that is pretty simplistic. Like it is basically just like a movie, a music video. It's constructed from a series of of well-established tropes of the heist film, the criminal mastermind film. You know, it's predictable, doesn't really do anything new plot-wise. It's all in its kind of, you know, musical invigoration, I suppose. So I feel like for maybe the first two-thirds of the film, it's, it's quite good in using these tropes and then it falls off a little bit in the last third. But in terms of my personal engagement with it on a level of cinematic energy I kind of didn't really last all that much past the first half right and I realized it was like narratively driven but when this whole kind of the speed of the film started to change when it started to shift into maybe more convoluted complicated kind of piecing together of crimes and having more characters I really felt like it just dropped off a little bit and that was a narrative necessity I realized but in translating it to the screen didn't really work for me right okay Anders Mm. what did you make of Baby Driver I think I agree with you Eloise I thought the beginning was quite incredible that opening uh, robbery scene I think it's all it's on YouTube I think they're sort of promoting the film by uh, releasing this entire six minute scene and the way it sort of tracks just with Baby in his car and we sort of get glimpses of this bank robbery happening mm. in the background, but it's very much on him and his engagement with his iPod. That was really cool. And then I loved the opening credits, mm. which I wasn't quite expecting. This like... Was that the Harlem Shuffle? Or yeah, with the lyrics appearing yes. on the wall. Mm. Yes, that's it. And he's like walking around the yeah, streets yeah, yeah. of like downtown was Atlanta. That, was that one shot? Yeah, I, it, it was, but it be, was yeah. apparently the, the, the lyrics were CGI'd onto the... Right. Onto the wall. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I mean, it was just like a really interesting look at city life, which is, I always sort of enjoy seeing on screen. But as a whole, I really don't know. I, there were a few sort of absurdities or odd things, and I, I didn't really understand why everyone seemed to irrationally hate baby like all of these characters like really get up in his face while he's like sitting there listening to music like all these other criminals he he like brings out this weird antagonism he's an unknown quantity everyone that Mm. he's around he's he's something to be suspicious of yeah Yeah. well yeah okay fair enough and I don't know how well the car racing scenes were actually filmed and maybe it was because I was watching it and I was 
half, I was sort of waking up, I watched it very early this morning, but I felt myself sort of drifting in and out of attention with those half, no, second right. half of the, the film. First, the very first scene, the very first car chase was so well done and I was completely oriented for the whole thing. I knew where I was, I knew where the car was, mm. I knew where the other police cars were. It was just really well orchestrated because... I was engaged in the in the scene itself and I was being thrown all over the place with the movie, not thrown all over the place outside of the movie, which is a result of a lot of fast editing, action movie editing these days. Mm. But I think later on, particularly in that really crazy final or, or you know, almost final sequence. Um, in the car park? Yeah, in the car park. Like a lot of these car chase scenes got really disorienting. Yeah. And that shift really didn't work for me. I was really enjoying the that initial kind of in energy. In a way and then, that for me contrasts with something like the Fast and the Furious series where mm. I don't think they have that problem. I think the action and those road scenes, like they are invigorating and quite when – I, when I watch those movies, I feel quite, quite – viscerally I go yes I am a redhead for like two hours which is not me at all I've driven once before in my life but this film didn't have the same impact for me um wow okay and then another criticism I would have or I so okay so a lot of Edgar Wright movies is to do with like making jokes and stuff through editing and through you know match cuts and stuff like that and it's a very clever, interesting way of um, making a movie. But there were some sort of, on for me, on-the-nose mo- on moments. So there's a moment where he, like, match cuts a laundromat washing yeah, machine with, with a, t- a spinning record. Yeah. And I was like, well, what's the point of that? Like, what is the point of that beyond the fact that they're two rotating circles? Because it references the interior of um, the Elvis Costello album, This Year's Model, where if you pull there out the sleeve, it has, it has exactly the same washing machine. Oh, really? Thing. Right. Yeah. Do you know what? So... It's another there, Okay, so now, so to some people, here we go, this is the genius of Edgar Wright, right? But for me, not knowing that, yeah, does yeah. it feel like I'm, I've just missed out on that? Well, no, because you've got the you've, you've whole Debra playing, which is a beautiful song. Well, I actually really liked those moments because I thought, you know, this is a film, as I said, which is made up of a number of really well-established tropes of crime film, you know, of kind of, you know, low-impact crime film, I suppose. But basically the, the main settings were a diner, a laundromat, a pizza place. It was like a checklist of US popular film institutions. And I really liked that the film was engaging on that kind of level as well. And that, you know, that shift from the laundromat to the record player was kind of playing in that in that. Yeah, I also love well. that we got to see Atlanta just be Atlanta. Do you know, I didn't realise this was Atlanta. It, Atlanta is where... Um, that film, that other film Keep, with John Hamm. Yeah, keeping up that with the Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses <laughs> that we reviewed. Anyway, that, um, <laughs> so that we reviewed because of John Hamm. Anyway, that's just a hilarious aside. Lo- Nothing to do with no, the film. No, I that too. John yeah. Hamm and Aza Gonzalez, I loved their sort of, I don't know, they, they're this sort of intense couple. And their final sort of action scene where, like, they go all guns blazing, I thought that was really well-directed and really cool. Yeah, it, it it's definitely has this overwhelmingly idiosyncratic sensibility, which I like, which I enjoy. Yeah, it, it does have this sort of unique texture to it. Talking of on the nose, did you notice that the coffee cups came from a brand called Octane? Yeah, right. I yeah. noticed it, but I didn't even really appreciate it that much. I, I was like, mm, that's not particularly exciting me right now as a particular comment. So that was another thing that just left me a little bit. Uh, did it remind either of you of La La Land? No. 
Okay, because that's interesting because it is a musical. It's like set in the city. It's like there's cars in the, the opening scene. The opening scene, that's interesting. I do know what you mean. The opening, not the opening scene, but the second, the credits bit where he's dancing, yeah. dance walking to Harlem Shuffle, reminded me so, so much of this 1932 film called Love Me Tonight by Ruben Mamoulian. So the opening scene, it's a very early sound film and the dialogue is quite awkward um, in its, you know, how it's recorded and whatnot. But the opening scene is just, it kind of opens on this street scene in Paris and this incredible rhythm is created and eventually it builds up to be a song. This rhythm is built up by just everyday sounds, you know, like people polishing their shoes, um, the factory whistles, people opening their window shutters, snoring, you know. So it's basically, you know, it's actually a literal symphony of city life. Mm. And it's this incredible scene and it's super famous, but that's what I kind of got the the sense of when I was watching the scene because he's engaged, he's listening to music and he's making this music and then he's making it again on the street by, you know, kind mm. of mirroring the sounds that he's hearing on the street. And then that I loved so, so much. And as I said before, you know, it is narratively necessary because there are certain things that happen to him psychologically where he's not that engaged anymore with his surroundings. But when it lost that, just the film kind of lost me and it was it was a real shame because I loved seeing that. Yeah, so I was really um, surprised because it didn't ramp up, up, up and up with, with, you know, and become more, you know, high-octane sort of craziness. It actually, the climax, the last, you know, quarter of the film was actually really subdued. It's really real, real kind of twist in the way that it kind of honours the oh, emotional the whole, core yeah. of the story. It doesn't, mm. it's not a film, therefore, about, you know, music and cars. It becomes this film, you know, about the emotional story that is at, you know, kind of comes in halfway through, mm. which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah, it is an interesting choice. But again, I didn't buy the emotions because I didn't buy that Lily James's character would suddenly be on Team Baby. But at she all. said that like in the first time they met. Like, I can't wait to be on a. I, on I a mean, I kind of I can buy that because that was the thing that happened in a lot of older movies where people would just get on oh, side yeah, with each other immediately, and it was trying to call back to that and that final sequence, which is like almost fantasy entirely. Well, you know, from Baby's point, at least, a lot of their relationship is fantasy, I think. It's doing that and it's paying homage to that. And I really, mm. I did, you know, I didn't have any problem with them just wanting to run off together. No, the whole thing felt like a fairy tale, like La La Land Yeah, to me. yeah. I didn't think of La La Land once, um, but I think I try and think about La La Land as little as possible. <laughs> so that might be why. But I can see what you mean, that opening scene with the cars. Different, very different speed-wise, obviously, because, you know, La La Land opens in a traffic jam. Yep. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, you know, the, the rhythm of everyday life. Now, this is, to me, like an example of how you pull your influences and make them really obvious and do it really well mm. in the way that Tarantino perhaps used to do. But not, mm. yeah, I don't know. I thought it was really unusual to see such a pure vision. Like this is something that was totally Edgar Wright. Mm. Like, oh, no, definitely. Like, definitely like you were saying about the idiosyncrasy of this film. Yeah, totally. Really one of the strengths, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was all right. I, I'd really like to watch the opening two scenes again and then yeah, yeah. Uh, nothing else. Because mm. yeah. yeah. it could have really easily gone, this is an ad for an iPod, mm. but it didn't. It, it kind of has this much bigger scale, particularly like from those opening scenes. I mean, that sounds like something you would have seen in 2005, say, on, on YouTube. Yeah, if that yeah. Existed then. Yeah. yeah. Mm, but it's just got this complete, yeah, completely wonderful, really, really sure of its sure vision, which I thought it's was ve- great. Uh, uh, yeah, like I said, confounding. I think Ansel Egort is confounding too. I well, yeah, don't for, know. 
He I did, don't know how I feel about him. Well, I really don't. He's got barely any lines. I'm yeah. Yeah, I'm the same as you, Anders. I, I think I I think I liked him a lot, but I'm not yeah, sure. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, really weird. I can't believe you guys are on the fence about this. It's like such a euphoric burst of cinema. Like it's just so it's just so pure. It's so Liz, wonderful. Uh, yeah, you, it's kind of I, difficult to analyse because it's so superficial. I'm not on the fence about the first two scenes. Yeah. I'm on the fence about the rest of it. Like, is that fair? It changes it, ch- it changes gears, which is something Ooh, I said nice accidentally way. and then yeah. I realised I hit myself over the head. Yeah, it does. But yeah. it does, yeah. But um, it does it for a good reason. So it does it to yeah. honour this relationship. Yeah, yeah, against yeah. This just, what did I you make of Kevin Spacey? Mm, fine. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I he was Kevin him, Spacey. Yeah. He was Kevin Spacey. Yeah. He was nothing else. Right. And Ham? You're a big fan of Ham. You're on the record as that. He, I'm a big Ham fan. He was fine. He, uh, and not just him, but also Kevin Spacey, I think, and also a number of the other characters, they aren't well-developed enough to really make their character shifts, which occur about three quarters of the way through believable or worthwhile or understandable because they're only supporting characters and because baby is such a key figure here. I feel like them as characters didn't really work super well because there is a point where they need to change their kind of tack and change their approach to baby for the plot to move ahead. Mm. I I didn't really buy it. Mm. I I agree. Also what's with, Edgar Wright just being like, oh, I need all of my thugs to have neck tattoos. You can't, you've never seen a thug without a neck tattoo? What's going on? It's Atlanta. It's 2017. Yeah, nah. Sorry. Loses some points in that regard. I, I, I think you've just made me realise why I find it so confounding because it is sort of entirely from Baby's point of view and I don't know how I feel about Ansel Eagle. Mm. And then all of these pop culture references as we just discovered before through that match edit, a lot of them went over my head. You know, maybe I'm just not the target audience for this kind of movie. Well, I know I'm not. And so because it's told from his point of view and through all of these references and there's a dissociation between me and that character, it didn't, it did, It wasn't the explosive burst of cinema the way that the Fast and the Furious Whoa, franchise are for me. I can't believe Fast and the Furious. I Seriously? Love, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Oh my God, the even in the that last one? Shot yeah, especially the last what? one. Didn't we? Did we review that? I've never seen a single Fast and oh, Furious. There's Hello. one in the last one. Was it one before where they have this the, amazing uh, the street race in Havana? Yes, that's the yeah. Bit. yeah, that's fantastic. That is awesome. No, but one when they go down like this mountain and they just go cross country in these cars. Yeah, the, in, like, in number six. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really it's so good. But pretty much the rest of that anyway. series, I can compl- I've completely forgotten. <laughs> okay, let's I, move anyway, on. Anyway, we don't sorry. need to talk yeah. about so, that. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's fine. Yeah. Whatever yeah. Is, okay. is my response. I, I agree <laughs> with you, Eloise. That yeah, I've, for me too. The opening scene and the opening credits were the highlight. Mm. Yep, you are wrong. It's brilliant. <laughs> Speaking of great music, what's that? Oh, it's that beat that tells you it's the time to open your calendar and get involved in the Melbourne screen scene. The Scandinavian Film Festival runs at Palace Cinemas across Melbourne until August 2nd. Highlights include Aki Karasmaki's new film The Other Side of Hope, Dome Karasaki's Tom of Finland. Oh, yeah. I didn't really realise that was playing. And Eric Pape's Oscar shortlisted film The King's Choice, as well as The Man, whose director Charlotte Sealing is best known from starring in the TV series Unit 1, The Killing and Borgen, is a guest of the festival. With the release of films like Bong Joon-ho's Okja, television is inc- becoming an increasingly common destination for movies, and the series Mania Fil- Festival at Acme celebrates this. As well as showcasing recent and forthcoming made-for-TV films and series, Series Mania is also hosting talks about the current landscape and uncertain future of the medium. 
that runs at Acme from July 20 to 24. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's all free. It is. Yeah. Absolutely spot on. Yes. Thanks for the reminder. Also at Acme, the Powell and Pressburger film The Tales of Hoffman is getting the big screen treatment from July 22nd until August 1st. Over at the Astor, the Mad Max Maxathon is exactly what you think it is. All four Mad Max films back to back, kicking off at 11am on Saturday, July 22nd. Their Hitchcock season continues on July 27th with Rope and The Man Who Knew Too Much. And if you prefer to forget the more recent offerings of Terence Malick, you could always catch up with Badlands and Days of Heaven, which are showing as a double bill on July 30th. Finally, on the 31st of July, John Carpenter's The Thing and Videodrome are showing. Eloise, what's happening at Cinematech? So before Cinematech takes a break for the Melbourne International Film Festival, we have a single night screening of three silent Ernst Lubitsch films. Now, you both know me very well, and I will never give up on a chance to see an Ernst Lubitsch film, especially not in a cinema. The Oyster Princess, A Woman of Paris, and The Marriage Circle. So these are the three films that are kind of paying homage to his friendship with Charlie Chaplin. So that's on July 26 uh, as a one-off screening before the film festival starts. Cool. And I am definitely going to be there. I love Ernst Lubitsch. I, I don't know, I tell the story all the time, but just very briefly, my favourite anecdote about Ernst Lubitsch is because he, he was known for the Lubitsch touch, which is what people said was like this lightness of touch he brings to film. And what he's, he collaborated for a long time with the screenwriter. I can't remember the name of the screenwriter. But um, the screenwriter got annoyed that he was being overlooked for all the conversation about Ernst Lubitsch and so sent Lubitsch this, like, 120 pages, blank pages, and on the top he just wrote, put the Lubitsch touch on this. <laughs> That's, like, one of my favourite stories ever. My favourite Lubitsch <laughs> anecdote does not involve Lubitsch himself, but after Ernst Lubitsch died, Billy Wilder, who was Ernst Lubitsch's yeah. biggest fan, yeah. said to William Wyler, no more Lubitsch, and William Wyler said, even worse than that, no more Lubitsch film. Okay, if you're um, interested in watching films uh, not in cinemas, then you can always switch to Mubi. Lately, Mubi has posted a spate of short films competing at the International Short Film Festival Oberhausen. And I caught up with a few of those. Ayo Agkingbede's Tower XYZ focuses on the lives and future of an unnamed girl living in a tower block in London. And that has a lilting score and features a recited poem and goes for a whole three minutes. So that's no real excuse not to see that film. Um, did any of you guys have any other highlights from movie at the moment? I haven't had a chance to watch anything because I've been in Italy for a couple of weeks where we can't get access to the Australian movie content. And I was watching enough films anyway, as we will get to. But I'm really excited to see Doris Wishman's Bad Girls Go to Hell. This film, I think, is like a sexploitation, possibly, um, but a a bit crazy and uh, features a a woman who I assume kills a rapist and then hits the road, as the description says. So So is that sort of the Annabella-style subvertive sexploitation could be, yeah. Well, I assume that Doris, yeah, Doris Wishman's would be a sub- subversive, so possibly of that style. I think very yeah, much. Okay, anyway, cool. I'm. It's only sixty five minutes, and I'm excited to get to that. Cool. And I would like to make note of Xavier Dolan's Heartbeats. Xavier Dolan Dol- uh, is a filmmaker who meant a great deal to me at a very specific moment of my life, and now that that moment has passed. It's a bit weird to revisit him. But I loved, loved this movie the first time I saw it. I just desperately wanted to be one of these hot, young, queer Quebecois with their (laughs) endless free time and limitless appetite for sexual tension. It's such a cool film. If you haven't seen it, I totally recommend tracking it down. 
Cool. And um, if you are interested in seeing those or any other films that are on Mubi, please remember to go to mubi.com slash cultural capital to get your first month free. Eloise, um, you mentioned earlier that you had were overseas and busy watching films. Would you like to expand on that for our listeners? I'd love to. So I went to Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna in Italy, which takes place, I think, late June, every June. Uh, it was its 31st year this year. It's the biggest, maybe, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but it's a very large retrospective repertory film festival in the world with uh, which screens films every year for all sorts of places. Um, there was a, a Japanese 1930s Japanese retrospective stream this year as well. So there are people who go every year. There are other Melbourneites who go, but this is my first time. And I it's only eight days long, and I saw... Something like 42 films with a couple of shorts as well here and there. So it's really exciting. I saw a lot of silent films um, that were all accompanied by either a single pianist or there were a couple that screened outdoors in the piazza, you know, on a beautiful, warm summer's night with full orchestra. So Abel Gantz of the um, famous three-hour Napoleon film made a film called La Rue or La Rue and it's four and a half hours and it's being restored currently and all that has been restored at this point is the 25 minute prelude so they screened the 25 minute prelude to this film and it was stunning it was incredible it was so innovative it was so alive I don't even know when it's from 1923 I want to say but it was just so so great using train imagery and tension tension of um, time and space uh, which was just really beautiful so they screened the 25 minute prelude to this with full orchestral accompaniment it was amazing after that they followed it with a restoration of Battleship Potemkin which I didn't need to see. Even the Bologna Philharmonic couldn't really (laughs) tempt me to to stay for some Eisenstein. But then I saw Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. with full orchestra. It was so amazing. Cineteca Bologna, I think, has been restoring a lot of Buster Keaton films. And so I saw a couple of those. Stuff being restored by MoMA, New Discoveries for me, pre-code films. I think I saw like 10 pre-code films or something, which is just my heaven. Um, (laughs) I had the best time. I want to go again. I don't know if I can justify it, but I'm going to try and make it happen. Wow, that sounds incredible. Anyway, yeah, I saw a lot of films in Italy (laughs) and now I'm back seeing a lot of films in Melbourne. (laughs) It has occurred to me that we might reflect on the unexpected presence of Corporal McBurney in the house. Until his leg heals, of course. And we might discuss how we may practice compassion and what else we might learn from his presence here. What does each of you think of this? Miss Alicia, can you tell us what you think we may learn from his presence here? Um, maybe the sight of him will remind us there's something else in the world besides lessons. Oh, it seems to me that is all there should be for any young lady your age. 
Set at the tail end of the American Civil War, but distinctly and notably without much historical context, The Beguiled tells of a small boarding school and refuge in the South near Richmond, Virginia, with five students, one teacher, Edwina, played by Kirsten Dunst, and the headmistress, Miss Martha Farnsworth, played by Nicole Kidman. The film opens with one of the students, Amy, Una Lawrence, walking down a path near her boarding school in the woods where she finds a wounded Yankee soldier, Corporal John McBurney, Colin Farrell, and helps him back to their home, led, as she says, by her good Christian charity. The women and girls at the school, a large white building on a slightly overgrown plantation that sits in a pot of heat, make a group decision to house him until his wound heals and then let him on his way, deciding not to give him up to the Confederate Army. This is partly out of their aforementioned charity, but also, which Coppola makes very clear in this very sly black comedy, because each is fascinated by and even attracted to the man, who is both a rarity in their midst, but also conveniently wounded and at their mercy. The women all fight each other for him in their own beguiling ways, but they also stick together, whether by sisterhood or by necessity. Anders, did this movie charm you? It did have a subtly growing enchantment. It was beguiling, in other words. Yeah, no, it did. Okay, so where to begin? I think I've said this before, but one of my favourite concepts in fiction is this idea of, like, throwing a pebble into the pond and watching the sort of ripple effects. So, metaphorically speaking. So, we have... You establish this sort of group of characters, these women who all... Women and and girls who all have pre-existing relationships. There are rules sort of governing how they interact with each other. There's sort of a power structure at play. And then you add something new and see what happens. So this is what occurs in The Beguiled. We have this group of white women and girls in the American South at the time of the Civil War. They live in this like quite stunning, giant, secluded mansion in the woods. And then Colin Farrell's wounded Yankee soldier shows up and just watching how this incursion from the outside world changes the way they interact is really fascinating and I think as you mentioned um crucially there's sort of like this stripping back of the historical context of the civil war or to to some degree and that's been the most controversial thing about this movie and we can maybe discuss discuss that in depth shortly but I'd be interested in your take Andy well yeah Sophia Coppola I think is really fascinating because when I think about her films I'm like oh yeah that was really great and then when I come to watch them I'm like oh she can't remember how she doesn't know how to tell a story particularly well and so she does have these beautiful attention to detail which I remember and love from so many of her other films I think like the bling ring I remember thinking that was great but mainly for this one scene in which somebody robs a house also a bunch of girls rob a house and in this case like the hair was incredible the costumes were amazing I hope they get Mm. Oscar nominated Mm. they're just phenomenal and perfect for what was needed to tell this story but at the same time she's using these great big cliches of like mist and Spanish moss and trees and white columned houses and almost everything you would think of when you try and think of you know the antebellum south and then she kind of keeps it so focused on these women and their experience which was great you know which was you know which was interesting but I was really wanting more and I was I'm one of the biggest fans of Phoenix. You know, it's never been like that. It's one of the greatest pop albums of the last, you know, since the century began. But that was the terror. The score added absolutely nothing to this. There was a, the sound quality. I thought was was nothing special. 
there was a lot of things that I was really surprised by. And as soon as it comes to, to driving the story rather than observing the story, I feel like she loses it. I don't have any problem with there being no story in a film. I mean, that's what cinephilia is, is just this love of moments and where moments make you invested in a film and where all you can remember is the moment rather than a plot um, or a particular, you know, I don't know, character or narrative development. I mean, I yeah, I don't necessarily think that that's – and not that you are criticising it, but that's not necessarily a, a – way of say, of discounting a film's importance. Yeah, well then know. she should make her own film about it and not adapt a book. Well, I mean, I, yes, I see what you mean by that, but perhaps it was more an idea rather than a, a book or, or anything. But I do think that there was kind of relevance in her updating this, the Don Siegel version of the film from 1971 rather than just making her own. I mean, this is what people have been saying, right, is that if she didn't want to deal with history she didn't want to like deal with politics she should have just made another story about a group of women caught up in a claustrophobic home environment having to compete with one another for a certain person um, rather than setting it in this particular context but I think that in other her other films she's also done the same thing she's chosen a setting or she's chosen a moment you know with Marie Antoinette was like completely ahistorical as well and so there, there is it's just a way of situating her kind of analyses uh, across, I don't know, across culture mm. somehow. And, and also I would argue, and, and this is a strong thing that I think is like a film, uh, see that all of that context is there in the film anyway and we bring it to the film as viewers and I think that's what makes watching The Beguiled particularly interesting because these women are removed from the civil war and the racial politics and all of that that's going, it's exploding off frame and mm. quite quite like the film opens with this really creepy I thought uh, mm. scene with this girl sort of singing a nursery rhyme and picking mushrooms and you can just hear mm. the gunshots of mm. the civil war off in the distance and she's completely unfazed by it like completely just like picking mushrooms as if you know there's not a war raging just beyond the door I mean this that's what's so weird and creepy about this movie yeah, I um I love that, and I love when you know a setting is set via sound rather than via visual moments. But what I think is really interesting is comparing the opening to the opening of the Don Siegel version, especially considering the criticism of this film's exclusion of the original black character from the novel, their slave Hallie, although I think her name is M- Matty in the book, and it's you know blindness to black life in the South. So Coppola's opens with one of the students walking into the woods, humming a key tune of the era, Lorena, which is an antebellum song that became very popular with soldiers at the time. Coppola, I think, locates it in that era musically, but at the same time she draws on mythology of the time, you know, this song about a desire for home, or it's in a lot of films about that particular time, I think. You know, a lot to do with patriotism. Anyway, Seagulls opens, rather than opening on... In the woods, Seagulls opens on an aged photograph of Abraham Lincoln and the Union soldiers. The sounds of war drums are a lot louder and call even before the universal logo comes up on the screen. So the sound starts before the image. And I always find that really, really interesting when filmmakers do that. But so then sounds of a cavalry train arriving and army calls come um, onto the soundtrack. The photos become distinctly battle-focused, as do the sounds recalling chaos and brutality. Then there's a gentle refrain of a song, which you realise later is actually 
Clint Eastwood's voice kind of humming to himself. Um, and the sepia continues. The film leads us into basically the same kind of place where Coppola starts. The camera pans down through all this Spanish moss onto a girl picking mushrooms. And then she finds the Clint Eastwood character, so the corporal. But the fact that the Siegel version opens so distinctly in the war is what's really interesting. But Coppola still has that sound of bombs, as you said, Anders. So I think it's very interested in the atmospherics of it rather than the actual location of it, of the history. It's, yeah, yeah. I would agree. Like, this is what I connected to, this, like, strange, creepy sensation you get that here are these women in this house who have very deliberately sort of cut themselves off from the outside world to a large degree. And they're in this, like, bizarre parallel universe, like, with this sort of hyper-polite, very Christian all very rigid, the way they all sort of interact with each other. And it's just like, it's so creepy because when you're watching this, you know, well, I, anyway, I, when I was watching that, I was still conscious of the fact that beyond the walls of this estate, you know, America's tearing itself apart. And that was, there was this interesting frisson between those two things. So I thought it was like this under, this constant undercurrent that I found really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't feel that frisson at all. I felt there was so much like inherent selfishness, like necessity, like by necessity for this seminary school to be completely its own bubble, which is of course something that the couple is excels at is this sort of women's life within this sort of bubble of affluence yeah. and and not having anything to do with the outside world. So when somebody like, you know, McBurney comes in, suddenly they're all like looking to religion, they're looking to each other as to how to ex- how to deal with this sort of invasion. And so, the first of all, you know, they use their Christian sense of charity to be able to, you know, to help him despite him being on the other side and him being a massive inconvenience, as they say in the trailer. Um, and I thought that was really interesting the way that Coppola uh, used the greatest actress of our time to express a teenager who really wants to be an adult. Nicole Kidman. Elle Fanning. <laughs> she is very good, Elle Fanning, actually. Elle Fanning's fantastic. She's, she's been playing this. She's been really good at this kind of character. Yeah, 20th Century Women, she was amazing at that, yeah. So it was really great to see, because you can just put a camera on her face and you've got half the story told there because she's just so great. But everybody was really great in this. I mean, like, Kirsten Dunst was perfectly cast. Nicole Kidman is great. It was sold really well. I just didn't really buy what was being sold. I totally... Totally bought it. I love. Same, I mean, it's it's telling a story and it's telling a story about women, and so it's analysing how you know this group of women might react in this particular situation. But also, it's just it's so hilarious. It's a black comedy. You can see yes. in their faces. You can see them say things. You can tell, and that's why they're all such good actresses. And even the the girls who play the um, young teenagers whose names I don't Shout know. Shout out to Angori Rice, Australia's own. Yes. Well, her, great. Mm-hmm. Um, that was great. And Una Lawrence, whose name I know because it's a great name. Um, <laughs> you know, even on their faces, you can tell they're saying these things, uh, you know, as a matter of decorum and they're masking what they're saying within what they're taught to say in this school environment. But you can tell that really they're just concerned about themselves and they're thinking about this man that's in front of them in this new temptation. And you know that all of them know that all of them are trying to bed this man, Mm, but mm. no one's saying it. And that's hilarious. And it's hilarious. And I think it 
it's really going somewhere by being so because the seagull version is still quite funny um but it's maybe much more serious in the way it treats this like psychosexual tension and it's a lot crazier and the women i think there's a lot more at stake but there's there's just something just so fun about the Coppola version but it, it's not like it's um not taking itself seriously i agree it's it's this I don't know. I don't know if it's a lightness of touch or, or, or what it is, but I, I completely agree. Particularly there's this sort of tonal shift that happens maybe two-thirds of the way through the film, and that was when it became, like, quite... It was enjoyable. It, mm. was, it was fun to watch. I, that moment where Nicole Kidman yells out, hand me the anatomy book. <laughs> so and good. It's, it's, yeah, I don't, it, was, it was great. So, yeah, it's, it was funny. I didn't expect it to move through such sort of... Um, comprehensive emotional shift or, or something it sort of moved yeah the emotional register sort of moved yeah. somewhere and do you know andy you mentioned the soundtrack but there was really no soundtrack apart from you know the these um diegetic performances yeah. of folk songs oh, there was no soundtrack there was a score and, as well yeah yeah, yeah but no it until, until um yeah. the moment i think I feel like the first moment was when there's a cut and they're digging a grave and there's this really ominous yes. kind of hum. I think that was the moment when the music came in. Is that right? Or I think it? so, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. Anyway, and yeah. then there were a few calls afterwards, but I really liked that basically it was just quite silent. Yeah, I would and, have preferred and that. you had all of these shots of the, the house in silence there was this shot where he wakes up and you know he's discovered that his leg's been amputated. So it's just a shot of the house and then he screams. And I loved that, that that was the shift where it happened and it kind of became, I don't know, a bit hilarious, even though it's horrific and his leg was amputated. Yeah, it almost became farcical in a way. Like the tone was so heightened. Do you know why I think it is? Is because I'm sorry, I I keep comparing it and I haven't read the book, so I don't know, but I keep comparing it to the Seagull version. But that has more story and that has maybe more character development, but there wasn't really all that much in the Coppola version. So it could be more hilarious and it could kind of move faster. And so scenes were cut short, which means the pace was going, the pace was being kept up. And that's where this sense just kept um, kept going and kept driving the film forward because it didn't need to be bogged down by by story, basically. Exactly, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of a lot, this film? And I haven't seen this film in quite a few years, but Pasolini's Teorama, where a mysterious man played by Terence Stamp and his crotch comes to a family yes. home and fascinates yes. and bewitches every member of a family <laughs> yes, yeah. and seduces them one by one, even the dog. Right? I don't know. I just kind of and, – and it's it's a, it's a ludicrous film. It's bizarre. It, it becomes quite tragic and there is that undercurrent of, you know, the workers' union and the father and, and stuff. But but that particular plot is, is just very silly. Yeah. So I kind of couldn't help but calling back to that film. Okay, so The Guile has also like triggered a lot of conversations in the media around mm. its losing a particular character from the 71 version. Yeah. Prompted a lot of people to take some pretty polarising opinions, I suppose. Have you been following these? Yeah, so basically, first I just want to say that the Slate Culture Gab Fest, I listened to their review of this film and I disagreed with it quite a lot. They had a lot of problem with this so-called whitewashing of the film and referred to the film as having plantation nostalgia Right. Which reminded me of Christos Cholkas's term plantation chic when he was reviewing <laughs> Get Out earlier this year, um, which I just think is a 
like it's ridiculous. It's I feel like it's it's just as bad as what is being criticised if you're making up a term like that with no other background. I mean, the only other kind of reference point that the Slate Culture Gabfest gave was Beyonce's Lemonade, which used the same house for the plantation oh, in Louisiana. Yeah. Although interiors, according to Wikipedia, were filmed in Jennifer Coolidge's New Orleans home. Did you guys know that? Yes, I did know that, actually. Um, Yeah, yeah, anyway, another reason to love her, not that we needed one. So, yeah, plantation nostalgia, (laughs) I just disagree with that term existing at this particular point. I don't think that there's a reason to. I mean, the, the removal of the black character from the novel and from the Seagull version was definitely notable. Coppola said that she didn't want to see young girls young girls watch her film. She didn't want to see she didn't want them to see a depiction of a character as a slave in this particular way that she was twisted into the plot. Which I can understand, although I do actually think that the character of Hallie, played by Mae Mercer in the Seagull version, even though she was a slave, was really on quite even ground with the white girls um, and provided a really important angle on slavery, race relations and class privilege. One of the characters in the Seagull version refuses to do work in the garden because it's hard labour and she says that it, you know, it should be done by their slaves. So I feel like that that was really quite... Good in the in the Siegel version, but I don't really think it's whitewashing history. Like it's not like Coppola is telling a story of something that actually happened in a historical moment and is removing, you know, is removing all black influence from that particular moment. You know, I, it's quite yeah. likely that this house actually existed in this way and that the slaves had in fact left and that they would be so wound up in their own lives that it wouldn't necessarily come to them there's also this criticism that the edwina character kirsten dunce character in the novel was a black woman passing as white i mean that wasn't in the seagull version either so so the fact that uh, you know i don't really think that that's fair that the coppola is cutting all this copying all this yeah i feel like she couldn't have won no matter what she did yeah yeah i think that that was what her her kind of opinion was about this as well to me i think the women on screen are so removed from that context that's around them and that is the that is a key point of the film. So, I mean, they, they live in this ridiculous, secluded, privileged bubble, which is so divorced from the reality going on outside them. And as viewers, we are very conscious of that reality. Because it's not in the film text doesn't mean it's not in the text that's created in our response to the film at yeah, all. For exactly. me, it yeah. wasn't at all. It was very much part of the film in that way, and it mm. made it all the more weirder and creepier that, that it was like that. I love when mm. Colin Farrell wakes up from being drugged or passed out and realises he's got no leg and he says, you didn't tell me it was a house of mad women. Like you thought that because they were women, they were just going <laughs> to be, um, you know, kind of just submissive and do what he said. I love this indulgence and that that's what he screams out, that these are mad women and that the film, you know, Coppola doesn't shy away and say, no, these women aren't mad. You know, she kind of revels in it. And I yeah. Really oh, yeah, they're all, they're all, all of, insane. They all, <laughs> you know, I, I love an insane headmistress of a school like yes, Mrs. Agreed. Appleyard, you know. Nicole Kidman, I think, does it really well. I don't think she does it quite as well as Geraldine Page, um, who is just so insane. Yeah, she's great and, those sorts of roles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like Geraldine Page should have won an Oscar for this. But anyway, you know, what's done is done. But, I, you know, I love that that, that is, was put out there. You know, it's a house of mad women. It's not a complete history of, of the time. I loved it so much. 
I did too. I honestly did too. I think there's a lot in it. And it's just very elegantly made too. It's yeah, really it's well made. Beautifully crafted. It's really well made. Definitely. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 30 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate us and review us on iTunes, we'd be very grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And it's very exciting. We're at episode 30. Cultural Capital is the same age as me. Oh, sweet. Happy so exciting. Happy <laughs> <birthday>. <laughs>